Please take your Bible and turn with me this evening to the last book of the New Testament, Revelation chapter 12, Revelation chapter 12. We're going to read the first 11 verses, Revelation chapter 12. Beginning in verse 1, let's all hear God's inspired word. And there appeared a great wonder in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and upon her head a crown of twelve stars. And she, being with child, cried, travailing in birth, and pained to be delivered. There appeared another wonder in heaven, And behold, a great red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns upon his heads. And his tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven and did cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman which was ready to be delivered for to devour her child as soon as it was born. And she brought forth a man-child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up unto God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she hath a place prepared of God, that they should feed her there a thousand two hundred and threescore days. And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, And the dragon fought against his angels, and prevailed not. Neither was their place found any more in heaven. And the dragon, the great dragon, was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now is come salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ. For the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony. And they loved not their lives unto the death. And God will bless the reading of his word to our hearts for his name's sake. Now, would you bow your heads and your hearts, please, for a moment around the throne. Let's seek the Lord together. Our God and Father, in obedience to thy word, we call upon thy name because it's a time when we need help, the help of grace, the help of thy everlasting mercy. Tonight, Lord, we ask for that gracious anointing to be given to thy servant to preach. Give him the very words, the thoughts, the application. Get him beyond the notes on paper. At the same time, Lord, guard his heart and guard his thoughts and his lips. Let not the freedom from the notes lead him to say anything contrary to what's written in the word. May we all feel tonight we're in the presence of God, for indeed we are. 
May we see the Lord, even as he comes to be our teacher about this vital topic before us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. And amen. The more you read, let alone study, the book of Revelation, the more you will understand why probably the greatest mind of the Reformation, John Calvin, along with many other eminent divines, never attempted to write a commentary on this book. Most of the other books of the Bible, but this one, no. You can easily apply uh, Peter's comment uh, that he made about Paul's writings to the book of Revelation, that he wrote some things hard to be understood, only I would replace the word some with many as I read the book of Revelation. Many things hard to be understood. The passage we've read this evening is really a case in point. Just how you interpret the timing of the events that we read about that take place in this chapter depends on which one of the three views that you hold on to to interpret the prophecies of Revelation, if indeed you have any view at all. Any lengthy study of Revelation will lead you to, whether you realize it or not, have one of these three views. You'll not be able to understand that apart from at least some kind of a framework. If you are a preterist, you believe that the prophecies in Revelation were all fulfilled with the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. and the eventual fall of the Roman Empire. That's one way that Revelation is interpreted, its prophecies. And if you are a historicist, you interpret the prophecies in this book as symbolic of the progressive history of the church from the first century A.D. until the end of time. If you are a futurist, you believe that the prophecies from chapter 4 through to the end of the book are for a time that is still future. That is not to say that the futurist view doesn't see any references to the history of the church in those last 18 chapters, but the main emphasis of these prophecies deals with events that are yet to take place. So you can easily see that coming to a clear understanding just of the events that we read about tonight in chapter 12 can get rather confusing. No matter what scheme of interpretation you hold to. When did this take place? What's he referring to? There seems to be an overlapping of, of events in these first opening verses. I'm glad that the opening chapter of this book says that blessed are those that read, hear, and keep the words of this book. Because if the blessing was confined to those who understood it all, then no one would be blessed. There's just a whole lot that I don't understand. But I'm okay with that. 
If there was much that Calvin didn't understand, it's okay if John Wagner doesn't understand a whole lot. But what can we learn from this passage? For one thing, it's clear that whatever else it's about prophecy and end time, it's, it's clear that Satan and his angels are in a war with God and his angels. In other words, there has been, is now, and will be until the end of time and the great day of judgment, there will be a war that's going to take place in this spiritual world that's around us, the world that we can't see with our eyes. But it's going on. It's going on tonight. It's going on right here and now. It's going on in this place. There are spiritual beings in conflict. They have different opposing agendas. In Hebrews 1, verse 14, we read that all of the angels of God are ministering spirits sent forth to minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation. That's the Lord's angels. And, and yet you read in Luke 11 that demons seek to keep the souls of men in spiritual darkness and therefore they resist the advancement, any kind of advancement of the kingdom of God. Because they have a different end view in mind. Peter tells us that the devil roams about like a roaring lion. And he's not just there to scare people. Seeking whom he may devour. In Daniel 10, we read that Daniel had set himself to prayer and fasting when he understood that the 70 years God had uh, prophesied about Israel's Babylonian captivity had come to an end. And an angel appears to him in a vision and says that he had been sent by God to answer in answer to his prayers to the Lord. And he would have been there sooner. This is marvelous, you know, when you think about it. God heard your prayer. Immediately I was sent. And I would have been here sooner, Daniel, if there had not been another angel of the devil that withstood me. For 21 days, three weeks, until Michael the archangel came and helped me. There's a real war going on that we know nothing about. But this passage goes on to show that not only has there been war between God's angels and Satan's angels, but there has been a raging battle between Satan and the people of God. Paul states in Ephesians 6.12 that you could quote it off by heart, we wrestle not against flesh and blood. It's not humans that we're dealing with. It's not humans but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness, or wicked spirits, literally, 
in high or heavenly places. The name Satan means adversary. So it's about this battle between the devil and the believers that I want to say a few things this evening. Because to walk, to walk through this world with Christ as your Savior is to make yourself an enemy of the devil. As a follower of Jesus Christ, you have felt the rage of Satan as he has fought you every day, every day, for every inch of progress you have sought to make. You would have to confess it's never come easy. Although with all your heart you wish it would. You wish you could, through the process of osmosis, simply by putting your head upon the pillow and maybe putting a Bible under it, it would all just come into your mind and you would wake up the next day more enlightened than ever, more grace than ever. Yes, you would like to think that all you would have to do is to attend church, to come and hear the sermons, orthodox preaching, and it's just going to presto change, oh, you'll have one victory after another. But that's not how it's worked. For all of those things, you still know you're in a war. He has sought to devour you. He has sought to drive you away from Christ, to drive you away from the cross, to get you to be filled with unbelief in the promises of God, to put a big question mark over things that are fundamental to the faith. All in order to get you to quit following the Lord. See, he knows that there's only two leaders to follow. It's him or it's Satan or it's God. It's Satan or it's God. You're not following the Lord, you're following the devil. And that's what he's after. Always. Because he's at war with God. But, here you are. Here you are after how many years of being a believer and you're still you're still seeking the Lord. You, you might not be seeking Him the way you'd like to, or as much as you'd Amen. know you should, but you haven't apostatized, have you? You haven't turned your back upon Jesus Christ. Oh, you've wandered away more times than you dare think. You've lost track of how many times you've wandered away. But isn't it something that you've always been brought back? Amen. Every time. This evening, what I want to deal with tonight declares quite plainly that the Lord's people, whoever they are, in whatever age, they'll never be overcome. No matter how vicious Satan gets, no matter how heated his rage gets against the Lord's people, they will never be overcome by him. 
It will be said of us in verse 11, And they overcame him. He didn't overcome them, but they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they loved not their lives, even unto death. So from that verse, I want to this evening look at the overcoming the arch enemy of God's people. Overcoming the arch enemy of God's people. Since, as I'm sure you know, one of the fundamental elements of warfare is knowing your enemy, I want to look at the description that John gives of this arch enemy. And they overcame him. Who is this him? The him, of course, refers back to Satan mentioned in verse 3. He's called there a great red dragon that had seven heads and ten horns. I'll let the Bible scholars go into interpreting the seven heads and the ten horns. That's not germane to what I need to deal with this evening. It's the dragon. A dragon symbolizes a powerful, aggressive, and deadly foe. Therefore, the one, our arch enemy, the one that we are to overcome is a strong enemy in the first place. A strong enemy. Well, who didn't know that? I would suggest to you that you and I don't really know that. At least like we should know it. How strong he actually is. Luther caught it in his hymn when he said, on earth is not his equal. You'll see the strength of him in verse 9 that this great red dragon is called the old serpent. In the Old Testament you will read of Egypt and Pharaoh and even Babylon the mighty military and political powers opposing Israel being described as a serpent and as Leviathan. Isaiah chapter 27 verse 1, in that day the Lord, with his sore and great and strong sword, shall punish Leviathan, the piercing serpent, even Leviathan, that crooked serpent, and he shall slay the dragon that is in the sea. So, from that text, this, this serpent and this Leviathan must be the same creature. Whatever animal it was. I've read the commentaries for years, and you come to the conclusion after you've read all the commentaries, they're all just guessing at what this animal actually was Leviathan. All kinds of suggestions made that were none the closer to be able to define. This was Leviathan. In chapter 41 of Job, he describes Leviathan as some kind of semi-marine, fire-breathing animal, clad in 
and armor of hard scales, I quote now, esteeming iron as straw and brass as rotten wood, counting darts as stubble and laughing at the shaking of a spear. In other words, there's no fear of man in this Leviathan. For some to suggest that it was a crocodile doesn't add up. Esteeming iron as straw. When Jeremiah describes the destroying power of Babylon in Jeremiah 51, verse 34, he says, He hath swallowed me up like a dragon. Whatever this creature was, the, the point Scripture makes in it all is that the serpent, Leviathan, the dragon, ultimately symbolizes Satan and symbolizes him as a very powerful creature. Now, how do you see how powerful he is? In the first place, he has tremendous power to deceive. Verse 9, he deceiveth the whole world. What powers of deception he must have when under his influence? The third part of God's angels fell with Lucifer. A third of the angels of heaven bought into his lie. That's tremendous deceptive power. He deceived Eve into believing the biggest lie that has ever been foisted upon mankind, and that's to say that God didn't tell you the truth. And in her perfect state, she believed a lie. She was deceived. She thought he was telling her the truth. Folks, that's scary. That is something to be afraid of. Such is his power to deceive. He can get people to believe a lie is the truth, and the truth is a lie. And Eve was in a perfect environment. Ever since that time, he's had tremendous success in deluding men's minds to believe so much rubbish. Like, for instance, that there's no hell to shun and there's no heaven to gain. Do you realize how commonly that view is? No heaven. Was it, wasn't it George Harrison who put that in his song? There's no heaven, there's no hell. Well, that's believed. There's no God to answer to. There's no everlasting punishment. It's sad to say there are people supposedly of the evangelical faith who are more and more buying into that there is no 
eternal punishment, that the soul is just brought to an end of existence, and that's it. They're buying into it. He gets men to believe there's, there's, there's no price to pay for rejecting God's Son, and there's nothing to lose by going on your own way and living like you want. He deceives people into thinking that, and I've heard them, I've heard them tell it to my face. I, I remember a young man years ago when I was in the workforce and I was testifying to him in the parking lot of where I worked and I had just brought the reality of hell to him and the judgment of God and then he said this world is the only hell I'll ever know he believed that when he can convince seduce the minds even of Christians to believe that what God calls sin is not sin? It's astounding. I mean, I, I, uh, we shouldn't have any problem naming sin for what it is. That's sin. But but, 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 but you see, the, the goalposts have been moved. The lines have been marred and muddied. And, and now what, what was never acceptable by God's people for hundreds of years is now, it's okay. That's tremendous power to deceive people. And they don't even know it. He has tremendous power to deceive people when they actually believe that they can fight this war and deal with this devil and all of his deception and really ignore the word of the Lord. Not spend any time reading it, not spend any time studying it, not trying to find out what God's will is. <laughs> and actually have the arrogance to think, I'm okay, this is good. And they know very little about what the scriptures say. That's deception. Revelation 19 tells us in this same epistle that it is Satan working through the instrumentality of what we know as the beast and the false prophet that deceived them that received the mark of the beast and them that worshipped his image. You probably know I'm a futurist. By now you should. These are events that are coming down the road. And whatever this mark of the beast is, whatever it is, it will be necessary to buy and sell, to live, to exist. He deceived them. 
Note that. He deceived them that received the mark of the beast. They were duped. Tricked. Satan is called the old serpent. And that reminds us that he's been around a long time, which says he's very skilled at this business of deceiving people. After thousands of years of constant practicing the art of deception, he is the master deceiver. He was very cunning when he came to Eve with his lies about God, about his word, about her and Adam. And he's learned a, hot, a whole lot more since then, I can assure you, about the human heart. That was his first attempt with the human. And he got her. Thousands of years he's been practicing. So Paul says in Ephesians 6, he speaks of the wiles of the devil. Well, the scripture nowhere indicates that he has any ability to read our thoughts and our minds, yet he does carefully observe our behavior. He watches and looks for our weak spots. And you have them and I have them. And he knows so well how to lay the trap. He knows how to set you up for a fall. He knows which buttons to push so that you will be the most gullible to believing a lie that comes from his wicked heart. You and I have no idea how good he is at deception. It's always the same allurements to sin. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. But he comes to us with those same temptation from a thousand different ways. No door that you will ever make can shut him out. You go ahead and shut your prayer closet door. I won't keep him out. No degree of holiness can place you beyond his reach. No amount of experience, no amount of knowledge of God's word will bring you outside of the power of Satan to deceive. Not only does he have power to deceive, but he has power to destroy. In verse 3, he's described as well as the red dragon. Red, of course, is the color in Scripture of blood. Red is the color of the horse in Revelation chapter 6, whose rider was to take peace from the earth, who carried a sword of execution, and who filled the world with bloodshed and slaughter, who will fill the world. Red is the color of the apparel of the Almighty King. Revelation chapter 19, when he puts on his strength, a vesture dipped in blood to crush his enemies. So the color red, this red dragon, speaks of bloody deaths and flaming wrath. And so you understand why 
why Satan, this adversary of God's people, this arch enemy of the church and of the Christian, because he's everywhere portrayed in the Lord's Word as one who is cruel, who is bloodthirsty, who is always, he's always intent on destruction. He wants to destroy, not build up, except build up his own kingdom. But he's always after destroying the kingdom of God, whether it's in a local church, whether it's in a home and families, whether it's in the heart. He's always intent on destroying anything of God. Christ said that he was a murderer from the beginning. Peter said he's that lion who devours. All of these passions that arise in men's hearts and break out in deeds of violence and blood, they are of his inspiration. You talk about the power to deceive, join with the power to destroy. I, I sat in my chair and shook my head this past week when I read an article, a news article. This was an interview of the son of Bruce Jenner, whom I would think all of you now know as Caitlyn Jenner. This was his son talking about his dad. He didn't feel very close to his dad. Uh, didn't, his dad didn't have much time for him, and he was sort of a recluse. But now, ever since, she has changed. And in the same breath, his dad was a he, now he calls her a she. You talk about confusion? You talk about the power to deceive combined with the power to destroy? And it's becoming the norm? It's destructive to society. He really is a bloodthirsty monster in the truest sense of the word. He's also not only a strong enemy, but he's a slanderous enemy. In verse 9, that word is their devil. The Greek word is diabolos. So, slanderer, false accuser. We get our word diabolical from this word. Slanderer, false accuser. In verse 10, where a loud voice from heaven declares that the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. So, he's an accuser of God's people, slanders them, speaks evil of them to others, and particularly before God. There's an interesting translation of this word in Titus chapter 2, verse 3. Paul tells Titus that the older women in the church were to conduct themselves in a way that becometh godliness and not to be false accusers. 
Literally, the Greek is not to be devils. Bound up with the word translated devil is the idea of malicious gossip spreading false accusations. We had the Cairns at the table dinner time. And there's a woman who recently passed away. I believe it was a brother Tomasian's grandmother. Very simple woman, they said, very godly woman. But her children and grandchildren remember her whenever they would come in and begin to say a word of gossip, stop them dead in their tracks. Stop. I don't want to hear it. Stop. All of them were raised that way. Ah, you see why that Paul would tell, liken them to malicious gossip, false accusers. You find that the devil seeks to oppose the, the people of God by bringing slanderous accusations against them, and he's no dummy. He knows he's got to bring that based upon the law of God. You, you picture the kind of enemy that we're facing, that we're battling. He, he tempts the believer to sin does everything he can to get you to fall, and then he brings railing accusations against us for those very sins he's tempted us to commit. But the real power of his slander lies not so much in the fact that we've sinned, but in the conclusions he draws, wants us to draw from our sins and our failures. That's what he's after all along. It's the application. I got them to sin, but I'm really aiming at something else far more serious. He loves to find fault with Christ's people. You do know that that's just so devil-like to find fault. Fault finding. Doesn't mean you stick your head under the rug and you don't deal with sin and don't call a spade a spade, but fault finding. That's what the devil does. He looks for them. He appeared before God one day and accused Job of being a hypocrite, of serving God for the good life that God had given him. Not out of love to the Lord. There's a lesson. In Zechariah 3, we find one of the prophet's visions that Joshua, the high priest, is standing before the angel of the Lord. And guess who is at his right hand? And Satan is standing at his right hand to resist him. The devil was there to accuse Joshua before God of all of his sins and failures. And he does the same thing with you and me. 
If he's not accusing us to God, he certainly whispers his accusations in our ears, and he's very able to charge us with sin. And in this courtroom, he argues based upon our corruptions and many failures that God is against us and that God will not accept us and that we're not his at all. And there's no point in frying. Just give up. Now, there's what he's after. Give up. You just back off. It isn't worth all the trouble. It isn't worth the fight. It isn't worth the battle. But he's a liar. The accuser came. Bunyan pictures this so well in Pilgrim's Progress, where Christian meets Apollyon. And Apollyon, but Bunyan understood it, is he's trying to get Christian to forsake Christ the Prince and go back to serving him. Yeah, that's what he's after. That's what he wants you to do to go back to serving him. Christian says to him that he would rather have Christ's service and he would rather have Christ's company and he'd rather have Christ's wages than Apollyon's company and service and wages. It is then that proud Apollyon, who just received an insult, accuses Christian of being unfaithful in his service to Christ and therefore should not expect to get any wages from him. Christian is stunned by that statement and wants to know where he's been unfaithful. And Apollyon responds, you fainted when you first started out? Hey, you remember when you fell into that slough of despond? Have you forgot about that? You attempted wrong means to get that burden off your back and when you should have stayed until your prince took it off. You fell asleep on the way to the celestial city and you lost something that was very precious and you had to go back. You were unfaithful and you were almost persuaded to go back at the sight of those lions. And truth of the matter is, Apollyon says, what you're really after is vainglory. You're you're not in this for Christ. You're in this for yourself. What you can get out of it. It's all about you. You see what's so slick about the devil? There's usually always this element of truth in what he's saying. Always this element of truth. Where we can see that, yeah, there's too much of me in this. And I haven't been faithful. And I have failed. And I did go into that slough of despond. He's right, you know. 
That's what he's after. He is a great slanderer. This accuser, you keep that in mind. I know one thing, he's trying with all of his might, and this is... This actually shows you how deceived he is. That he actually thinks he can keep Christ's people out of heaven and get them confined to hell. He wants to see every one of Christ's people burn in the lake of fire. Not because he has any particular deep-seated hatred for you as an individual. It's just because you're one of Christ's people, and Christ is the one he hates. It's always Christ he's after. You're just the way, the means to get to him. It's not all about you. It's all about Christ. Let's not let our heads get too big here now. It's God who he's warring with. He believes that we deserve eternal judgment. And therefore he seeks to convince God's people and God that we should be given eternal punishment. So he's always accusing, bringing up all the reasons. The voice is always there at your elbow. Thirdly, he is a subtle enemy. The old serpent takes you back to Genesis 3, more subtle than any beast of the field. The serpent. Saw a good-sized snake in front of my house this past week. Maybe it was the end of last week. Lost track of time. Good-sized one. Don't have any idea what kind of snake it was because I don't bother my time studying snakes. But if it's a snake, it's a serpent, and it's going to die. Especially when it's in my front yard. You talk about subtle... Got the pellet gun out, too close for the scope. I'm trying to eyeball it. The head's up like this, perfectly still. Did not move a fraction, perfectly still. That's subtle, boy. I'm behind it. I'm, I'm looking down behind it like this, just a few feet away. Just, just. Why, you think it wasn't even there? Well, the BB gun with an iron sights on it took care of that pretty quickly. The headshot came and it began to move. Subtlety. You don't even realize it. I want you to 
think with me just for a little bit at the end here of how the devil uses this subtlety to bring the child of God, you and me, into a state of discouragement, dismay, doubts, depression, despair, and defeat, and resign to that kind of living. In the first place, he causes Christ's people, in all of his subtlety, to remember their sins more than they remember their Savior. You found yourself doing that. Far more focused on what's wrong with you than what's right with Christ. Far more focused on your own transgressions than you are the triumph of the cross over those transgressions. And once you become consumed and focused and your eyes are upon all that's wrong in your sins and transgressions, your iniquities, your failures, your unbelief, your, your coldness of heart, your prayerlessness, my, the list can go on and on and on. What hope do you have of being joyful if that's where your eyes stay? But he does that. That's the point of the accusations. That's the point of the slander. Do you see how diabolical it is for preachers to beat the people of God over their heads with all their faults and failings and using guilt theology to motivate them to holy living? It's, it's always being, here's what's wrong with you, here's what's wrong with you, you need to do this, you need to do that, it goes on. No. There are things I need to do and there are things I need to be. But my joy and my happiness, my peace of mind, is founded on Jesus Christ's blood and righteousness. His beauty are my glorious dress. He can so put your eyes so subtly upon your sins that you don't even see the remedy and it's staring you in the face. It's right, as they say, it's clear as the nose on your face and you don't even see it. He will also, with his skill, Calls God's people to look at what William Cowper called God's frowning providences as a sign that the Lord is against them and doesn't love them. Frowning providences, have you had them? The calamity, Mr. Cairns mentioned this morning. The afflictions. 
the fiery trials. And no deliverance comes. No answer comes. And things get worse and worse. <sighs> he hisses. The Lord's not for you. If God loved you, he would not treat you like this. You've prayed and prayed for something. But God's own hand is, is actually frustrating the things you're asking him to do and you've longed for. He also come and tell you that you're a counterfeit. You're phony. You're not a genuine Christian. You know, the funny thing is, it doesn't really bother those that are phonies, that are counterfeits. Just leaves them alone. It's the genuine article that gets the attention of the devil. Why would he come to a real phony and tell him you're a phony? But to a real child of God, all the time. On a regular basis, he comes and tries to convince us that the faith that we believe we have in God is a figment of our imagination. It's not real faith. He would seek to, in all of his subtle tactics, tell us that our repentance wasn't real or it wasn't deep enough. It wasn't thorough enough. We didn't shed enough tears. We didn't feel enough sorrow for it. Therefore, it's not forgiven. The zeal that we seem to have, oh, it's, it's nothing more than human passion. The kind of passion that people in hell have. In other words, he comes along and says, you're just a hypocrite. He's also very keen to remind us of our frequent relapses into some sin or sins that we've already repented of and that we've already prayed against and he comes into our ears and says, who are you kidding? You've said that you've confessed that sin, repented of it, and you've prayed against it and you've shed tears over it. Yet you keep falling into that same sin over and over. You're not a child of God. So just come along and follow me. I confess it's a tragic thing for a believer who has obtained mercy from God for sin, has confessed, has repented of the sin, the Lord has wiped away the tears from his eyes and picked up that believer from, the, from falling down and put him on the road again. It's a, it's a tragic thing for that believer to return and commit the same sin again. How much damage that does to the soul. 
And the devil makes great use of that to make you feel like I'm damaged goods. I am damaged goods. I'm worthless and I'm useless. But our text says to all of them, they overcame him. He didn't overcome them. What that actually means, we'll look at next week. Just for tonight, we need to know our enemy and his wiles, his strength, his subtlety. May God write his word on our hearts for his name's sake. Let's bow our heads in prayer and seek the Lord together. Father, Thou hast called us into a war. It's no option for us, and we know that that's the best thing that could ever happen to us. I can't imagine how lethargic and indolent we would be if we weren't put onto the battlefield. Oh, the flesh would like to be carried to the skies on flowery beds of ease. But thou hast given us the privilege of being in the camp of the host of God. And we pray, therefore, take thy word tonight. We, we don't want to be duped through a lack of ignorance of the devil's devices. We don't want to be found unable to say with Paul. Paul could say, we're not ignorant of those devices. We don't want to be ignorant of them. Our Father, as we think about how powerful He is, how many times He has deceived us, put our focus upon Christ. He alone is our Savior. And show us, our God, how we overcome, one day at a time, as we walk in this world. In Jesus' name we ask it, and for his glory, amen and amen.